This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Good evening and good morning, depending on where you're joining us from. Um, we are here for um, the Calgary Center Conference's session on hope or hype, hacking through the role of tech in refugee protect protection. Um, before I get started properly um, this evening, I'd just like to um, make a couple of Zoom housekeeping points. Uh, this is gonna be a 40 minute session, um, moderated discussion with our distinguished panel. Um, there will be time afterwards for audience questions. Now, you can submit these questions at any time through the Q&A tab, and you can vote on questions there if you like. Uh, we'll try to get as many of them as possible into the discussion, and immediately following um, this panel, there will be an opportunity for an interactive discussion in a breakout session. Um, there, you'll be able to um, turn on your cameras and microphones um, and engage in a bigger discussion. That breakout session will take place in a separate Zoom meeting. And you'll find the link in the chat and you can click through at the end of the session. Um, so to make the most of our 40 minutes, um, I'm just going to <clears throat> share a couple of thoughts and then we'll launch straight in um, with the panel. Um, I was reminded in preparation for this evening's session um, that it's of the New York Declaration that came four years ago. Now, as some of you may have noticed there's been an election in the United States, something that also happened um, four years ago. Um, back then, the New York Declaration uh, was a real kind of high watermark for a moment where refugee resettlement seemed to be um, rising right across much of the Western world. Um, private sector was seen as having a new and vigorous role um, to play in what was a very, um, a very optimistic and kind of uh, technologically friendly period um, uh, in the refugee landscape, at least. Um, coming forward four years, um, we've just had an election um, once again uh, in the US, and things seem markedly different. Um, if that period uh, in 2016 was marked by thoughts about how tech and private sector could play a role in everything from refugee protection to matching algorithms for refugee resettlement. Um, somewhat more skeptical thoughts dominate the landscape. Um, now there are questions around algorithms and discrimination. There are um, uh, international organizations are facing um, a much uh, much more skeptical view of their collaboration with big tech companies um, from Microsoft through to data miners like Palantir. Uh, on our panel this evening, I'm very pleased to, um, to have with us um, Te El Rayula, who is joining us, um, I think from the Netherlands. Um, and Te is the author of um, the Invisible Sun, uh, a new book that's come out um, this year. Um, Tay has uh, hands-on experience as an entrepreneur um, and a practitioner and miner of, um, <clears throat> a Bitcoin miner and a, and a practitioner in blockchain. Um, I'm gonna come to Tay first and I'll introduce our panelists as we go through these questions. Tay, if I could take you back um, four years, and you'll accept my premise that there was, a, there was a real surge of optimism around what tech could offer to refugee protection in 2016. What do you feel that you've learned um, uh, during that, during the intervening four years? And how do you feel about terms like tech for good now in 2020? Well, um, I believe uh, Technology has played a very important role in the journey of refugees, at least to Europe, uh, since the early days when asylum seekers started choosing Europe as a destination. They relied on technology to plan their trip 
specifically Facebook, uh, communication platforms like WhatsApp, uh, Facebook Messenger, helped to communicate the journey among groups. It helped to spread the message of safe routes. Uh, yeah, I want to call it FAQs frequently asked questions on a trip to Europe. Where does the boat leave from Egypt, for example? At what time? What's the prices they're going to pay to take a dinghy or a rubber boat and cross to Greece? So this is from a very, um, you see it as a public and more uh, common among, among uh, refugees. But there was something that we did not witness before, which is uh, refugees going to online platforms to continue their education and to study. And I am one of those people who uh, chose to study online. Um, and I pursued my masters in digital currencies and blockchain technology, but we are seeing now others going to other platforms, for example, let's say Coursera, where they can uh, continue their uh, education. And in 2020, we all became somehow refugees sitting confined to our own homes. We're not allowed to go outside. We communicate with our families, similar to how refugees communicate through WhatsApp, through the screen, through Facebook. Um, and you know, the number one thing that was uh, as well common between refugees and what we're living now in 2020 is the online education. So for me personally, this, they call it a brave new world or that say this is something new, but for refugees, it, it has been always the case of uh, trying to leverage anything you have, including technology to enhance your environment and to create something uh, good out of it. So I am one of the, uh, you know, supporters of that of that slogan, and I lived it uh, personally as well. That technology can be used for good. And um, I'd like to turn next to um, Petra Molnar. Petra is um, a lawyer and and researcher. She heads a new initiative called the Migration Tech Monitor. Um, and is also one of the directors of the Refugee Law Laboratory. Um, Petra, your work um, focuses on a different aspect of the um, interaction of technology and um, borders and refugee protection. Um, can I ask you to assess how technology or how you see um, technology interacting with the kinds of journeys um, that Tay has just been describing coming forward to today, so in 2020. Thank you, Daniel, and thank you for having me with you today. Yes, my, my work takes a slightly different approach, um, and we, we basically are trying to unpack some of the sharper edges of the technological development that occurs in migration management. By this, I mean um, the rise of surveillance technology, the rise of automation, and how it's impacting people's rights. And definitely, I would say over the last four years, um, it's, it's been a market rise in, in a variety of different technological experiments that we've been seeing in a variety of different um, migration ecosystems, borders, um, different corridors that people are crossing. And I think for me, when I reflect on how uh, the situation has been changing and the types of technological interventions that we're seeing, I always try and remind myself that it's important to remember that none of this occurs in a vacuum that we need to understand the kind of broader ecosystem in which these technologies develop, which priorities count, and the increasing worrying rise of the kind of big tech private sector companies that are increasingly calling the shots when it comes to this kind of tech development. Because really we're seeing an increase of anti-migrant sentiment, xenophobia, criminalization of migration, and the rise of what some people have called the border industrial complex. And now also with the pandemic, this kind of idea around biosurveillance that's ushering new tech interventions in the time of COVID, precisely because pandemic responses are always political and they map onto particular ways that certain communities are made marginalized. 
so I think I, I think this is such an important way of, of trying to unpack these issues, looking at it from a political perspective, but also a historical perspective, like you said, Daniel, within the last four years, but also perhaps even more of a deeper history, because certain communities and certain bodies are the ones on which these tech experiments are rolled out on. And if anything, I think as, as time goes on and as we are facing these increasing challenges, this kind of panopticon of migration technology is only going to get worse. At least that is something that we're trying to track at the migration and tech monitor. Um, because it's right now this kind of surveillance automation, whether you call it algorithmic decision-making or AI type technologies, we're seeing it impact every part of a person's journey before the border with big data and social media scraping at the border with things like drones and unpiloted surveillance equipment. And even beyond the border, when we're talking about automated decision-making in immigration applications, or even outlandish new projects like AI lie detectors. So really, I think if anything, this kind of surveillance and control over particular communities that we've been seeing historically is getting exacerbated both in the last four years, you know, with the rise of the Trump era, but also with the pandemic now. And the concern is that this kind of structural um, power imbalance is only going to get worse. Thank you, Petra. Um, I'd like to bring in um, Roya Pakzad. Um, Roya is the founder and director of um, Taraz, a research and advocacy organization working at the intersection of technology and human rights. Um, Roya comes from a slightly different um, background to, to some of the academics I've come across in, in in the certainly in the migration space in so much as uh, you were an electrical engineer at advanced micro devices and come into the human rights sphere um, from um, from a sharply technological background. Um, Roy, you, you've spoken of the need for a Hippocratic oath for technologists um, working in the humanitarian field. Can I ask you to explain a little bit um, what you what you mean by that and also reflect if I could um, ask you to also on this idea of where we're at now with the with a sense of, of tech being only for good in in the refugee space. Sure, thanks Daniel and hello everyone. Um, yes, I'm so glad that you brought up New York's declaration because I remember about three years ago I wrote a paper and I started with New York declaration and shared responsibility. And uh, when I read my paper again, I think that in some way that I was a little bit naive and I want to correct myself now because we are reflecting on what we wrote and uh, what we perceived. So one thing about the shared responsibility at the moment, I was thinking that it's all about partnership between big tech companies, big humanitarian organizations, all of them, they should be on the same page when they want to create or design a technology and when they want to deploy that. As a result, there was some kind of like recommendation that, oh, UNHCR should work with Microsoft, but uh, they, both of them, they should hold each other to account, but they have to be on the same page and create a technology that it can be used in different settings and in different uh, geographies or a different situation. That was kind of my perception of partnership, shared responsibilities. But now that I look back, I and I think about the designers and developers that they were involved in creating those technologies, I think we kind of overlooked community-focused and community-based and more decentralized way of creating technologies that maybe something it's going to only serve 20 people or 50 people and might not be applied for the UNHCR to be used for every settings. Maybe some of those community technologies or entrepreneurs among, among refugees themselves, they can work with a smaller humanitarian organization with open source communities and create a technology that it's not necessarily scalable. At the moment, I was thinking about like in humanitarian tech, we need that type of scalability uh, because everybody talked about like everyone is responsible for that. And I was thinking, okay, big tech and big humanitarian organizations are the one. 
Uh, I'm not saying that they should not be responsible and accountable, but the way that I think about technologies these days and how they are designed and developed is a more grassroots, more community focused and more decentralized. This is one uh, to answer your second question. For your first question, yes, because I myself, I was an engineer and I realized during the time that I was involved in designing and developing technologies, I didn't see the societal impact, political impacts of technologies because of my education was in a way that it didn't help me to understand these kinds of societal impacts. Um, as a result, I left my job and I went back to school to study human rights because I think as engineers, as scientists, as developers, uh, programmers, we also have responsibility to think about the impact of our work. That doesn't mean that we know all the answers, but at least there should be some kind of understanding about understanding about societal impact, about human rights impact, and how we in during the time that we want to think about certain ideas to solve certain issues, we also have to think about the short-term, long-term long impact of that to avoid all those tech solutionist um, ideas that it came up specifically in 2016, 2015. That is what I mean by Hippocratic Oaths for um, technologies that they specifically they work on humanitarian technologies. Thank you, Roya. Um, I'd like to turn next um, to Fleur Johns. Um, Fleur is the professor in the Faculty of Law at um, UNSW in Sydney. Um, she will in the coming year be um, <coughs> the Australian Research Council um, Future Fellow, uh, visiting professor at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, um, and is at work um, on data science in humanitarianism um, uh, under a, a grant from the Australian Research Council. Um, Flo, we've had a little bit of, I mean, some of the, some of the broader kind of categories have been um, touched upon here, um, but I'd like if I could to get you to talk about the, the trends um, in the use of big data by um, humanitarian actors. And more specifically, given that we're doing this at the Calder Center, um, I'd like you to, um, to talk about uh, as well what challenges that presents from a, a legal perspective. Thank you, Daniel. And hello, everyone. Good morning where I am. Um, so, yes, I, the, um, the broader trends, you're right, I think, Daniel, to, point, uh, to focus on this intensification of enthusiasm about the promise of uh, digital tech in the last four years. But it's worthwhile noting that it goes back quite some time. I mean, from memory, the use of biometric registration for refugees for um, resettlement support, accessing resettlement support was instituted at the Afghan-Pakistan border from about 2006-2007. So it's actually been creeping in, not necessarily, that sounds very malevolent, but it's been um, growing as a trend for a long time. But I think that you are right, over the last few years, it's become increasingly the reflex, the first reflex response when people talk about the intensification of demand upon humanitarian actors um, given in the, under the, the, um, given the predictions made by the IPCC about climate change and the growing frequency and intensification of disasters and displacement and, um, and the current and um, emerging uh, chance of um, uh, violent conflict over scarce resources. So it's becoming the reflex, the go-to, um, when people talk about the need for real-time data, the need for more um, granular data, particularly on communities that have been previously not well seen by the infrastructure of refugee protection. Um, the, another broad trend is that this meshes very well with the way governments are increasingly look to um, understand and um, uh, account for their mainstream populations. There's a, uh, a growing turn to um, various big data sources and techniques, data science techniques in official statistics by governments and, and the UN Stats Commission has a, a working group on that. So governments around the world, not just in relation to refugees, but in relation to their mainstream populations are looking to use um, satellite image data, mobile phone data, supermarket scanner data, um, to some extent, social media data. So this is part of a broader trend. Um, and an, another 
broad um, characteristic of this is the layering of this protective infrastructure and these initiatives upon a pre-existing infrastructure which was primarily built for profit and I'm talking about a software infrastructure a lot of the um, basic um, elements of the software but also the hardware infrastructure um, things like um, server farms undersea cables are uh, dominated by for-profit players and have been um, predominantly designed in their basic terms with a profit-making objective. So you had a refugee protection regime devised in the aftermath of the Second World War that was more or less purpose-built. Obviously, um, contracting out has been a long-term uh, trend in that, but it's not as though there were never for-profit players working in that space, but it was more or less purpose-built. And now you've got that protective regime's operations increasingly rooted through an architecture that was built for quite different purposes. And that has an, um, that is not without costs and risks. So to take me to the second part of your question, um, let me just highlight a few key risks and challenges. Um, one is the way in which this transforms the, the sort of transactions and interactions um, at work. So, if you think about an asylum seeker making a claim upon a host state or an international organization, that's really a moment of an assertion of a political identity and a, and a moment of reconnecting with a polity, with a community, a political and social community and economic community. And um, so it's a really important moment how we frame those, those moments of political identity formation. And things like biometric registration of refugees really transform the way we practice that. Um, and Again, I'm generalizing here, there's a lot of different ways that one can do it, but the tendency is to treat the refugee as a passive inert body emitting data rather than um, conducting that as a dialogical process when one is registering using biometric data. So it's, it's a fast, um, smooth, uh, um, relatively smooth um, uh, and um, designed to be seamless transaction that is not designed not uh, really um, a dialogical one it's very much a, a one-way one the body emits data the data is read and on we go so that's I think not insignificant the way we change the way refugees interact with states and international organizations a second key challenge is the way in which it relates to this point I made earlier about the kind of rerouting of refugee protection through um, for-profit architectures it tends to get enmeshed with other agendas and other objectives and that's not necessarily problematic in every instance but it does raise concerns. So um, it tends to get enmeshed in agendas of financial inclusion, including microfinance, and so on. And um, again, that's, that's not necessarily problematic in itself, access to finance and access to banking for the very poor is a very pressing and real concern. But, um, but it does raise difficulties if um, the possibility of opting out of, say, debt relations is not available to refugees. So this kind of meshing of agendas in ways that are not always easy to pull apart or for the refugee to grasp and understand and potentially opt out of, that is a major challenge. And the third one I would sort of, um, I would point to is one about which a lot of people have been talking and writing in recent years, which is all the questions around error and bias and, um, and vulnerability to breach. So, um, Digital identity management, for instance, often presents, as people, many people have observed, as quite an opaque and unquestionable process. And so um, invariably there are um, not just risks, but actualities of error and, and bias in these things. And they can be very difficult for a refugee um, or an asylum seeker or persons supporting the asylum seekers and refugees to access and interrogate and question in a meaningful way. Thank you, Fern. We'll be coming back to some of those points um, in the time that remains. Um, Tay, I'd like to come to you next. Um, you, we began the discussion um, with your um, observations on the grassroots adaptation of, um, of tech by people who were on the move. Um, but you've also spent significant time writing, thinking, working on the possibilities of using blockchain to create resilient um, portable identities um, and obviously a lot of hope has been in, invested in the idea that um, 
the blockchain might open the way to to different modes of financial inclusion for um, for different categories, from asylum seekers to to long-term refugees. Um, a lot of optimistic work has been built on some of those assumptions. Could you could you talk us through? I mean, starting um, just with a with your best description of what is blockchain and and how can it how can it meet um, the identity um, the identity challenge that that many people who have uh, who have moved through forced migration or internal displacement face. Uh, sure, sure. I mean, I'm uh, happy that Fleur uh, touched upon the points of biometrics and identity management. And uh, I mean, historically speaking, identity management as a piece of technology, it was used to automate killing and to automate death. And here I'm referring to the World War II event where the Nazis, uh, under the leadership of uh, Adolf Hitler, were using the identity management systems. Um, actually, it was one system in Europe, the punch card machine that was or that is a piece of an IBM technology at that time. Um, so the, the Nazis were able to go down in the roots of the families through the identity management system, the punch card machine, and identify where are the Jewish bloodlines. Now, this is somehow more or less happening today but in a biometric sense, where we collect face uh, images of refugees, asylum seekers, vulnerable populations, and we store them in those siloed date, data centers. And when you ask an NGO, you know, how are you protecting your data? In general, their answer is we have bank-grade security. I'm not sure if an NGO must have a bank-grade security for identity management systems, or is it their job in the first place to uh, preserve and protect data? Uh, or is it something that they need to learn now and they need to adapt uh, to the digital world we're living in? That being said, um, the vulnerability here or the chance of error somehow is equal to death. And there were incidents in the Netherlands where uh, you know, Iranian scientists and Iranian opposition leaders were assassinated inside the Netherlands uh, through the Iranian regime simply because their addresses and their data was leaked. Uh, the Rohingya crisis is another uh, example of how can or what is the imagination of what is the consequences of leaking data on uh, uh, refugee populations asylum seeker populations and vulnerable populations in general so this is i think a a, a very sensitive and very important uh, topic and i don't think it we can give it an hour to discuss this huge research and huge amount of resources is going into this topic specifically here in, uh, in Europe. Now, what happened is in, in the refugee crisis that we are witnessing now, the, I, will call, I will not label them, but I will call them people. People are fed up. You know, people are, uh, they're hopeless. And people have been living in plastic tents with a UNHCR label since six, seven, eight years. No hope, no future, uh, nothing, you know, just living in the void. And, they, and they're looking for an answer, but they're not getting it from governments, from NGOs. They're, they're getting it from somewhere else. They're getting them from the tech communities. Uh, 
So as a personal experience, two years in refugee camps in the Netherlands, when we wanted to have access to money, we were denied because simply we don't have papers. We don't exist. But who embraced us? It was the tech community that embraced a large number of, of refugees. Uh, it is the Facebook pages. It is the WhatsApp groups. It is the Telegram groups. And when it came to money and financial inclusion, it was the Bitcoin groups. Now, this is a very important uh, moment to consider in time when refugees are banked using fintech and using technology that is open, that is borderless, that is neutral, that's distributed. And whether you apply it in identity or you apply it in money, the consequences and the implications are huge. Suddenly, we don't have to wait for permissions. Suddenly, we can take decisions by ourselves. We can be self-sovereign. We can be self-sufficient. Is it happening now at a very shy scale? But it is happening. It is happening that we are seeing in different refugee camps, there is adoption of technology. There is adoption of blockchain. And what is blockchain simply? It's a, it's a, it's a tech. It's a tool. It's a tool that anyone can use around the world. It's a tool that works on your smartphone, on your internet connection. This is the basic requirements for it to give you financial access, to give you access to borrowing money, lending money, saving money, carrying money, and options to store your documents, store your private information in a safe and secure manner. Um, there is a huge gap between where refugees are today, where asylum seekers are today, where policy uh, thinkers and policymakers think refugees and asylum seekers are. And this gap is somehow, you know, closing, uh, you know, closing down by using uh, tech. But uh, it is permissionless tech. We, you don't need to take permission to be part of this network or this community. And that's the beauty of it. Thank you, Tay. Petra, if I could if I could come to you, um, you spoke a little bit before about um, the power imbalances that that um, that determine what the potential uses of tech are, um, both for the individual who's on the move and for migration, um, for for governments and others who are attempting migration control. You've talked and written recently about um, borders um, and. Uh, areas of, of, of mobility as testing grounds. Um, could you explain a little bit what you mean um, by that and, and why that means that the migration space in particular um, is worthy of study and understanding um, uh, potential hazards of tech? Yeah, thank you. Um, thanks, Daniel. You're referring to a report that we just released uh, last week on essentially trying to understand why certain spaces become testing grounds or high-risk laboratories of tech experimentation. And it's, it's interesting because for me, I, I'm a newcomer to the digital rights and tech space. Um, I'm an immigration lawyer by training. And as someone who's been working with communities that are made marginalized, that oftentimes don't have access to justice, don't have access to recourse, it was kind of interesting to try and figure out why particular tech is being rolled out in particular spaces. And again, it, it maps onto the way that power is distributed, the way that the ability to participate in conversations around innovation is distributed, and spaces that are on the margins, um, areas like different corridors where people are, of course, migrating, um, areas where there's already very limited oversight and where the, dis the decision making that happens is discretionary and opaque. It really makes the perfect kind of laboratory for experimentation. And Unfortunately, it's also sometimes just very difficult to know what is going on, both by the population that is living through it and is being impacted by it, uh, but also, you know, for those of us who are trying to understand how this all maps on to the very little governance and regulation that exists. 
And I do think this is deliberate. I think there is a de deliberate obfuscation around what is happening and how this technology is playing out on the daily, particularly because it's allowed to proliferate in spaces where accountability is virtually non-existent. And unfortunately in the European context, but also in the Australian context, you know, we've been seeing policies of border externalization or, or pushing borders further away from their physical location become a normalized policy. And unfortunately, once again, I think this kind of um, decision-making on part of policymakers and states and state sovereignty type conversations is only going to get worse. Just recently in September, the European Union released its new migration pact. And for those of you who are interested, it's worth a read, but it's also not surprising because this pact really stitches this all together quite nicely. There's a focus, a renewed focus on border uh, enforcement, uh, really clear messaging around surveillance and the expansion of powers of entities like Frontex, which is the the agency that basically polices Europe's borders. And again, this kind of framing around which communities are on the margins and therefore able to be kind of tested or experimented upon. And one of the concerns is, of course, that while people on the move, refugees, asylum seekers have very particular vulnerabilities, particularly when it comes to data breaches and sharing, like Tay was mentioning, the concern is that this is becoming so normalized that we as a society are going to be facing these types of issues as you know the years go on. So really, while we're now seeing this kind of experimentation or this testing ground occur in particular areas where discretionary decision-making already happens, concern is that this is going to be so normalized that it will become kind of part and parcel of our daily lives as uh, automation is already increasing basically in, in, in a variety of ways that you as an individual might be interacting with, with the public state entity and, and others. And for those of you who are interested, I'll put a link to the report in the chat um, if, if you are want to give it a read. Thank you, Petra. And um, it's sobering thoughts. Um, Roya, I'm going to turn to you in, in the hope of um, some slightly more optimistic thoughts um, on, on a potential role for a more humane and ethical um, artificial intelligence in this space. Um, is that uh, how do you see how do you how do you see that um, playing out, and what can we do um, to, to to push things in that direction? Sure, thank you. I have one uh, very simple, short answer, and the other one is a longer and more important answer. But in terms of using the technologies, in specifically in machine learning and algorithmic decision-making systems, there have been groups that they have been thinking about the issues of fairness, accountability, and transparency, how certain technologies perpetuate racial and gender bias and how it can be addressed. Uh, there are groups that are working on AI explainability and interpretability that those works are interesting too. Uh, but I think the question that, and then the report that Petra, she wrote that I really liked, it challenges the issue of power and why these technologies are used from the beginning. So that is something that it might be a more important question. And we have very, uh, we have to find a better answer for that question. Uh, and I think when you think about technology, um, there are ways to design them in a way that, that is more human-centric. So there are groups that they work in human-computer interaction, that they are trying to think about participatory design methods. They are thinking about value-sensitive design methods. These are very academic theoretical thinking that how in order to design and develop a technology, we have to involve the community but how we can translate those theoretical fields of the study, such as participatory design, value-sensitive design, human-centered design into actual practice. I think this is something that humanitarian organization, civil society organization, communities themselves, they can help because at the moment, these kinds of ideas are very much into theories. So this is something that I myself, I am very much looking forward to think how we can apply these theories in the situation of refugees. 
The other uh, thing that I can think about is about using these technologies to address the causes of migration. Because at the moment, we, when we talk about technologies, we always want to have a short answer or short-term impacts, how we can streamline uh, application process, asylum seeking process, housing resettlement. But then there are technologies that it can be used in order to think about the causes of uh, being a refugee or migration. One of those areas that we can think about is just, we all know that climate change has a direct impact on causing refugee crisis, why not using satellite imagery to understand how or how deforestation or climate change it might impact uh, refugee crisis or it might trigger ref refugee crisis? Or how can we use these kinds of technology in order to understand political unrest in certain countries that it might cause kind of refugees issues? So I think as um, scholars or practitioners or researchers that work in humanitarian technologies, we have to think not only about all the short-term fixes, but also about causes of these issues and how to apply technologies in those settings too. And I'm keen to get to um, some of the questions that we have coming in um, through the Q&A. But Fleur, I wanted to turn to you um, for um, a slightly unfair request, which is just a, a kind of a lightning, a lightning response um, to 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 the issue of of, of how legal scholars um, can contribute to to trying to reclaim this notion of um, of there being positive contribution from tech. I mean, it, how do you see what what would you see as being key to a, a legal scholar's response in trying to shape a positive outcome for, for tech interventions in this space? Sure, well, to focus on the issue of accountability, which is uppermost in mind for legal scholars typically, um, I think this interface between um, digital tech and the market logics with which it's often been developed and refugee protection regimes and their logics um, often tends, uh, leads uh, legal scholars to think about accountability in a number of uh, ways. Um, what we might think of as exit or voice. So the consumer protection idea that the consumer can go elsewhere, exit, or they can complain, um, voice, um, or in a legal, more traditionally legal way, um, a focus on uh, review and reasoning. So reasoning out, explaining the reasoning and, and focusing on um, the out, uh, particular disputes. So particular instances where things go wrong. And I think all those have their limits. So exit is difficult, uh, for an asylum seeker, you can't just shop around for refugee protection. Voice is difficult for a range of reasons that we're very familiar with, this audience will be very familiar with. And um, review and explainability and focusing upon instances of bad things happening really doesn't get to the important issues that um, both Roya and Petra have raised and also Tay have raised. So I think we need to think about other um, areas of accountability that uh, we have tools for and thinking and um, elsewhere in our repertoire. So we can think about things like participatory budgeting. So, so that um, it, getting into the earlier stages of the, the allocation of resources to tech development and procurement of particular uh, contracting out to particular um, companies or actors that we can think about um, possible accountability mechanisms and participation mechanisms, which are well established and there's a good repertoire of tools for those, but um, that attach at that earlier stage so that organisations like UNHCR could potentially reach, uh, look to things like participatory budgeting to get their constituents, um, asylum seekers and, and the broader constituency of, of the refugee, um, of organisations like UNHCR, involved in these very early and impactful decisions about where you allocate money and who you get involved in design and development. It can't rest on good a customer service and it can't rest on good intentions because we know from history that lots of bad things happen with the best of intentions. Definitely true and thank you for, for such a swift um, wide-ranging answer to that. Um, I'm going to turn to a question for Petra um, that's coming from Tamara Wood. Um, I, she's asking whether the impact of technology on migration and policies mainly quantitative 
i.e. it exacerbates the impacts and reach of already existing um, discrimination, as Petra mentioned, or is technology making a more fundamental difference um, to, way, to the way that migration is managed or controlled? Um, and I'll, I think I'll, I'll ask that question of Petra, but um, I might also come back to you, um, Fleur, um, from, to, to ask what the government's ambition in this is. But um, Petra, if I could start with you, is, um, <clears throat> is this actually sh shaping behavior of people who want to be on the move? Um, how, how do you see, how would you answer to tomorrow? Thanks, Daniel, and thanks, Tamara, for your question. Um, I mean, I think I think it's both. It, it definitely exacerbates what's already existing, the structural um, problems, discrimination, xenophobia that we're seeing. But I think you're right. I mean, it, it also is impacting and, and fundamentally changing how we imagine migration control to, to look like, both from the perspective of the kind of top-down um, surveillance state uh, state sovereignty approach, but also from the way that you know populations and people on the move might be thinking um, of, of changing their their own behavior and their own, for example, migration journeys. But I think the problem is that again, this is very much kind of a free-for-all space where it's difficult to know where, from at least from the surveillance perspective. Um, you know, how things are developing and, and moving forward, which I think, again, goes back to this kind of exacerbation of this kind of space of discretion, of opaque decision making, of a free for all in these kind of frontier spaces that is normalizing this kind of oftentimes violent, harmful use of technology. And I think that that's my biggest concern with all of this um, is just how how very quickly states and powerful entities have become used to using the kind of sharp edges of this technology against the, the populations that we work with or identify with and, and how normalized it is and how it's really changing and shaping the contours of what migration really looks like. Because it's also changing maybe the way that we conceptualize ideas around the border. I mean, these days, this can be your border, an iPhone or a cell phone very much is linked to your identity, your experience, the way you interact with the state or with the UNHCR, or even under COVID, the way that your population uh, or your movement is tracked rather. And so I think the idea around the border as an idea itself changing and then becoming embodied both within ourselves but within our personal technology is something that we need to think about as well. Um, actually, in, in order to address as many questions as, as possible, there's an interesting question coming from Graham Tom um, from Amnesty. Um, he cites the example of Australia government, uh, government's recent attempt to remove mobile phones from those in detention. And I think it's a good question for you, Tay. Um, have we reached the point where we should think of access to technology um, as being a human right? Um, and whether it can be protected. I'll start with Tay and then perhaps come to you, Flo, um, for, for your thoughts on, on the legal aspect of that. But Tay, human right? Yeah, I think uh, access to a smartphone and internet connection is a, not, is a basic human right as shelter, education, and, and anything else. And unfortunately, it's not only in Australia that uh, you know the government wants to take out uh, smartphones in camps. The first thing that you do as a refugee in the Netherlands or as an asylum seeker in the Netherlands, because later you become a refugee, uh, you have to give your smartphone to the police so that they can uh, check the content. And uh, uh, then through Facebook channels, asylum seekers communicate that, hey, if you're coming to a refugee camp, hide your smartphone, hide your cell phone. So why I'm saying this is, uh, Daniel, no matter how they enforce rules and they enforce regulations and they try to limit the movement of refugees and try to limit that the freedom that we that we want and we came for, we will always find ways to defeat that. There's always a, a loophole that we can exploit and uh, you know and and use technology, for, for our uh, for our benefit. Um, 
Thanks, Tay. And um, I'd also think that's partially an answer to Regina Jeffries, who was asking about um, the way in which technology can often define itself by being um, used to circumvent or resist government control. Um, but is there any theoretical framework flow that you can see um, in which um, access to technology can be, um, could be defined as a, as a human right? Yes, um, I'd agree with Tay. I don't actually think you need to think in terms of developing a new right. I think the way we have come to interact with these devices and um, depend upon this medium of communication means that it um, is, I think, a, a natural extension of quite conventional ways of thinking about freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, and also bodily integrity. I mean, there's been some interesting work that looks at the way in which the biome of the body, so the microbial existence of the body, actually includes devices that we um, maintain this intimacy with. So the, the microbes on our phone are actually part of our bodily biome, um, it can be argued. So the, this intimate dependence upon these devices, which is problematic for a range of reasons, means that they're essential to the way in which we connect with communities both near and far, and essential really to bodily integrity as much as freedom of expression, freedom of assembly. So I think we don't need to think, uh, and it wouldn't be strategically advisable to think in terms of arguing for a new human right. I think we need to um, extend our um, theorization and interpretation of traditional rights and just demonstrate, as, as is quite easy to do, I think, that these traditional rights now require access to um, technology and of course, electricity and other basic infrastructure that supports that technology. So it isn't all the whiz bang stuff, it's also the basics. I appreciate that. Um, I'd like to um, come to you, Roy, because you, you promised a short answer, but sketched out that there might be a much longer, um, more detailed answer. Um, and the question has come back um, uh, from Daniel Gazelbash, who's asking how we reclaim the technology for good agenda um, and referencing the notion of the Hippocratic Oath, just asking for um, other strategies that can be adopted to ensure that tech innovation um, promotes and furthers refugee and migrant interests. Well, you, you spoke a little bit about ways in which this could be done theoretically inside design processes, um, but I, I'd, I'd like to give you a little bit of space to expand on that because I was um, I was being uh, very controlling with the with the time previously. So, um, if if you'd like to uh, address Daniel's point. Sure, thank you for the question. About reclaiming tech for good, um, honestly, I came to this point that I think uh, we shouldn't think about tech for good, we should think about responsible technology. And when we think about responsible technologies and design, then you can use the tech for any reasons, including for humanitarian purposes. So um, in terms of Hippocratic Oath, um, I want to say that technologists, designers, developers, they have responsibilities, but that doesn't mean all the accountability and responsibility on them in terms of like holding to account. Uh, speaking of New York Declaration, Declaration and Shared Responsibility, Hippocratic Oath, or uh, learning how to design in a way that it's not uh, violating anybody's rights is one of the responsibility, but it doesn't minimize the legal responsibilities of governments, private sector, and humanitarian organization. But um, to answer the question, to expand on what I think about the design, one simple answer, it could be the notion of privacy by design, right? So if you are a technologist that you want to build an app, think about what are the principles of privacy by design, pseudonymization, anonymization, co uh, collecting data to the purpose that it's required for your certain technology, not beyond that. These are some of the principles that they can use, right? So, um, or when you think about participatory design, what does that mean? Does that mean only just doing participatory design, meaning that involving community in the design and developing of your project? Does that mean just doing 10 people interview and then based on that feedback, you uh, build your tool and that's it and call it participatory design? No, that's not. It means that from the level of ideation, 
to piloting, to testing, to deployment, have the community being involved in the project. The reason that I said it's theoretical and it's very hard to implement, because when you think about the issues about refugees, specifically about the short uh, term fixes or answers, the issue of urgency comes up, then you think, oh, how can we have a sustainable community engagement through the ideation all the way to design and deployment? And that's why I think we as the scholars or researchers and practitioners, we have to think about how to apply these theories. And um, there is another, just to be very specific, there is a very good book, it's called Value Sensitive Design by Bataya Friedman, that it sketched out 13 methods in order how to think about designing technologies that it's more based on values. It thinks it did specifically talk about uh, human rights and privacy, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly too. It's not a specific for refugees and humanitarian context, but I think it's good for us to think about these methods and how it can be applied in designing technologies. Uh, I can go further about deployment and maintenance of technology too, because it's something that it's not talked in our field, maintenance and sustainability of technology. We always talk about designing and deployment and not about maintenance, but um, I know that I have to be aware of the time that we have. But that is something that I, I would like us and also audience think about how maintaining these technologies um, when they are used and how to sustain them as opposed to, to just thinking about design and deployment. Um, I'd like to finish this evening just by going to um, the panelists um, one by one and asking for um, a very brief, uh, preferably about 30 or 40 second thoughts um, that you'd like to leave um, the audience with this evening on this issue of, um, of, of hope or hype around, around tech and refugee protection. It can either be a relatively positive thought, and we'll call that a hope, or um, a skeptical thought um, that's deflating somewhat the hype. Um, Petra, you're, you're always optimistic. Um, what, I'll first I'll pose that question to you first. I am always optimistic, but unfortunately in this space, my optimism is wavering a bit because I think the, the kind of big tech hype and techno solutionism is still very much part and parcel of the conversation, but it really, it, this kind of, you know, band-aid solution on these complex intractable social problems is really not the answer. I think what is the answer is thinking through meaningful participation with communities with lived experience asking ourselves bigger questions, you know, what kind of world do we want to live in and, and whose perspectives and priorities count? Um, Flo, could I come to you for your, your very quick thought? Yeah, so my natural inclination is, is to cut down the hype and focus on the skepticism. So perhaps I'll work against that and try and be a little hopeful. Um, if we think of this, um, our concerns about digital technology in refugee protection, as a set of a larger set of concerns around the way in which digital technology's ubiquity is transforming our social and political and economic relations and our legal relations as well, then um, that enables us to look at all sorts of practices that are actually quite um, exciting and interesting that don't necessarily relate to the refugee space. So um, communities like K-pop fans messing with surveillance applications um, that were developed around Black Lives Matter and things like that, there's interesting ways in which um, various communities around the world are devising interventions in this incredibly sometimes oppressive seeming and um, impregnable architecture. They're devising interventions that really um, problematize and mess with them, but also uh, create a community and, um, and create connections that wouldn't otherwise be possible. So I think if we look at all those practices and looking in unlikely places for those practices, we can find inspiration and hope and also friendship um, among those communities that can be the basis for um, political innovation and legal innovation going forward. Okay, hope or hype? No, I definitely uh, choose for uh, hope and uh, the reason is, uh, you know, refugees and asylum seekers cannot wait for politicians and cannot wait for policymakers to bring the change and bring the promise of technology and 
other things like shelter, education, and medicine uh, to our communities. So part of being a refugee and asylum seeker is the resilience you have in you to leave everything behind and come for a new start. The same way that we're able to use that resilience in our daily lives, we will and continue to use resilient technologies uh, in order to achieve what we want to achieve, whether communicate to our loved ones back home, transact online, open a shop online, study online. We are aware we are being monitored. We are aware we are being watched. So we always try to choose the best that suits our uh, current uh, situation. And, uh, you know, just on a very light note, if it wasn't for the pandemic, I wouldn't be with you here today because most probably this conference would have been taking place in a physical location in Australia. As a Syrian and as an asylum and a refugee seeker, I'm not allowed to enter Australia. So, uh, you know, the good side of the pandemic is it, it forced you guys to make an online stage. And that online stage gave me the chance to share my voice with you. So uh, that's the examples of Yes, technology can bring hope. Well, that's also helping me um, to um, come to a natural conclusion here. Um, I'd like to uh, thank the conveners of, um, of uh, this evening for me and this morning for many of you this conference um, at the Calder Center. I'd like to thank our um, very thoughtful um, panel and um, appreciate the questions that were also um, brought up for us here. Um, and I look forward to these conversations continuing in a multitude of um, different forums that we're all present in. Um, but thank you very much for, for your time, um, for your thoughts, um, and for your questions as well. Um, and that's all from us on the panel. Thank you. Thank you.